0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Owen Strand entitled The Clarity of Complementarity Transgender in Moral and Theological Perspective. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out more from Owen Strand, available now on Canon Plus. I want to welcome all of you to an evangelical appraisal of transgenderism and gender dysphoria. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, we have three presenters and then we'll have a panel discussion after the presentations. We're going to hear from Dr. Owen Strand of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Preston Sprinkle, who is recently of Eternity Bible College, but has now moved on to other things. And then Dr. Albert Moeller is going to be sharing In the third slot, and then we'll have our panel discussion. And right now, I want to introduce to you Dr. Owen Strand. Thank you. He wanted to watch wrestling. I wanted to watch the Food Network. Seven months prior to my short-lived relationship with the guy who won the battle over the remote, I was a lesbian, my long black hair neatly tied into a ponytail, my jeans sagging just enough to show off the boxer briefs I wore faithfully, my white t-shirt covering the chest that I worked diligently to hide, lest I look too much like the woman God made me, and beneath it all lay a soul that God died to save. Born with an inherent disposition to sin, mixed with fatherlessness, molestation, and limited to no examples of trustworthy men, led me into a lifestyle of homosexuality. It was a way of life I willingly embraced. My style of dress and behavior was somewhat indicative of my personality. A girly girl could never be used to describe Jackie. An aggressive tomboy was more like it. Therefore, the girls I attracted were typically everything that allowed me to become what I thought I wanted to secretly be, a woman. Jackie Hill Perry, whose testimony I was just reading, has a powerful story. For her, coming to Christ meant embracing her God-given womanhood. Jackie Hill Perry has gone on to become a prominent figure in the gospel-centered movement after her conversion. Today, the relationship between coming to Christ in conversion and embracing biblical complementarity is a matter of major discussion. Does embracing Christ mean embracing manhood or womanhood according to our biological sex? In this paper, I want to address this matter, asking a related question before zooming back out to the one above. According to scripture, is embracing the identity of the opposite sex an amoral or moral act? It has been my observation for some time now that the matter of transgender, one key facet of this broader matter, among evangelicals has belonged more to a psychological framework rather than a moral theological outlook. This is not to say that all who engage this matter do so from a purely or merely psychological cast. It is to say, however, that transgender and related issues like cross-dressing and gender dysphoria have in many cases been approached as a subject that Holy Scripture does not address or does not sufficiently address. In this paper, I wish to respectfully counter this view and show that in order to minister grace to sinners like us who do experience gender dysphoria, we must fundamentally and foundationally view gender dysphoria in light of a comprehensive moral theological perspective. This perspective, of course, in no way denies the deeply psychological dimensions of gender dysphoria, but it sees such dimensions as the outworking of a moral theological choice that fallen human beings make. My primary conversation partner here is Professor Mark Yarhouse, whose book Understanding Gender Dysphoria offers much food for thought. Yarhouse is ahead of his movement in addressing his subject. We are thankful, many of us, For his effort to engage this discussion, the counseling experience, for example, that Yarhouse possesses and the compassion that he clearly exudes for sinners like you and me are commendable. I do, however, have some concerns with Yarhouse's model. In what follows, I will examine his treatment of gender dysphoria and will then interact with a number of biblical texts to answer the question I have posed above. It is my hope that this interaction will yield a strengthening of the church's witness and ministry to people who experience gender dysphoria. So the first major section of this paper, how Yarhouse approaches gender dysphoria. Yarhouse quotes Millard Erickson in Understanding Gender Dysphoria on the relevance of scripture in his second chapter. He affirms that scripture is, quote, fully truthful in all its teachings, unquote, and is a, quote, sure source of guidance, quote, on matters of faith and life. He goes on to cite Genesis two twenty-one to 24, and notes that Christians have historically understood there to be two biological sexes and gender sexuality as a reflection of that distinction and complementarity seen in the creation narrative. This, in my view, is a sound statement. A bit further, Yarhouse argues that while we affirm two different sexes, we must also recognize that our gender identity and gender roles are often shaped by our current cultural context, such that we need to work to avoid adherence to rigid stereotypes of what it means to be male and female, his language. In discussing how Christians address gender dysphoria through our knowledge of the fall, Yarhouse calls for believers to retain convictions while also offering a thoughtful response rather than a knee-jerk reaction. Again, his language. He goes on to say that our doctrine of redemption leads us to seek to restore one another and to see that God is at work redeeming these experiences, which includes gender dysphoria. Again, in these respects, I am very thankful for his testimony. Agree with it. Yarhouse considers the conservative evangelical approach to transgender to be situated in an integrity framework that calls struggling people back to the sure coherence of God's design. So, for example, what I will offer in this paper would be called by Yarhaus uh, the position of integrity. He introduces also the disability framework, which he sees as, quote, gender incongruence as a reflection of a fallen world in which the condition is a disability, a non-moral reality, to be addressed with compassion, end quote. And he also considers, thirdly, the diversity framework. And he takes care to note that Christians will struggle to see either of these two systems as the overarching system that guides their engagement with gender dysphoria. He does say that he sees value in a disability framework that views dysphoria as, in his words, a non-moral reality. So he is staking out ground unmistakably here. The church should, in his view, reject the view that gender incongruence is the result of willful disobedience. For, in his words, this places the blame on the person navigating gender identity concerns. The matter of shame is a controlling concern for Yarhouse. He indicates that people who experience dysphoria often struggle greatly with shame due to the church's expectations. In later chapters, including chapter 3, Yarhouse shares that he does not believe that counselees chose gender dysphoria. They have just experienced it, and the ultimate cause is still unknown in his language. He encourages those dealing with dysphoria to consider a range of responses Here's what he says to this point. I quote, different behaviors or dress may not be ideal, but the person identifies the least invasive way to manage their dysphoria so that it does not become too distressing or impairing. This places such management on a continuum from least to most invasive and recognizes that hormonal treatment and sex reassignment could be the most invasive, end quote. Elsewhere, Yarhouse calls for the Christian community to recognize the conflict, he says, and try to work with the person and with those who have expertise in this area to find the least invasive ways to manage the dysphoria. I'm quoting him at length, but I think it's important to quote him at length. I want his perspective to be heard and, uh, and considered by this audience, even before I engage his perspective. This is the major position and stance that has been taken in evangelicalism to this point, and so we need to understand it aright. In framing response for churches, Yarhouse points to the need to help people belong to churches. And he says that this process of belonging to a Christian community is messy and much more complicated than many believers know. Accordingly, the church needs to be careful. Quote, even the message of belonging can be lost when a person wants to serve, let's say as a greeter, but is transgender and others in the church raise concerns about what message is being communicated to the community. After all, he says, many people who know and love Christ have besetting conditions that have simply not resolved as a result of their belief in Christ as their Savior. Yarhouse holds out three basic possibilities for people who experience gender dysphoria. Number one, resolving it in accordance with their biological sex. So that would belong more to the integrity framework. Number two, engaging in cross-dressing behavior intermittently to manage their dysphoria. That would be more of the disability framework. And thirdly, adopting the cross-gender role through possible hormonal treatment, or sex reassignment surgery that obviously reflects more of the diversity framework, the third perspective he advocates or or posits. The church, Yarhouse says, should avoid rigid stereotypes that reflect cultural concerns more than biblical concerns. Such congregations that do so risk not being hospitable due to their focus on conveying biblical truths to those on the inside his language. Indeed, the stakes are high in this conversation, I agree. If the church, he says, does not warm to an integrated framework that incorporates aspects of all three systems that he has posited, uh, integrity, disability, and diversity, Yarhouse believes that, quote, speaking solely with reference to the integrity framework will increasingly isolate evangelicals from a cultural context in which the diversity framework is emerging as most salient. In the end, Christians can benefit from valuing and speaking into the sacredness found in the integrity framework, the compassion we witness in the disability framework, and the identity and community considerations we see in the diversity framework. We now consider in response to Yarhouse, who I've quoted at length in order to be fair and to frame the discussion, a synthesis of biblical texts on the sexes that I think bear on this matter of transgender, the, the view that one's biological sex and one's gender identity do not necessarily match up. And so one is able and even called to take steps necessary to ensure that one's gender identity uh, is truly expressed regardless of what one's biological sex may be. We are going to look at several biblical passages that in some way bear on this discussion in my views. This is now my perspective, my response and interaction with your house. First, we see that God makes male and female in Genesis 1, I read from the sacred text. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This passage means that manhood and womanhood are essential properties. We do not see them as fluid, but in fundamental terms, as fixed. This is reinforced in Genesis 2, where the Lord personally and specially forms the frame of the man and the woman. Of course, the fall of Genesis 3 distorts our understanding of sex and sexuality. That very much needs To be said. Nonetheless, the design of God in the early chapters of Genesis forms our understanding of what we are called to be in Christ as men and as women. Simply put, we do not understand manhood or womanhood outside of these foundational chapters of Scripture. We cannot. We cannot know what we were created for. We cannot know what God's design is outside of Genesis 1 and 2. We are simply biological accidents. But if we embrace Genesis 1 and 2, we see that there is tremendous intentionality, purpose, and design. You could almost say intelligent design in the creation of the man and the woman. Second text we need to consider. God forbids cross-dressing in the old covenant law. Deuteronomy 22, 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Yarhouse comments here. The passages from Deuteronomy are certainly important, and we can see different ways in which we might understand it. We can also see, he says, that even where we might demonstrate some restraint and caution, we see a reaffirmation of gender distinctiveness that Christians would want to understand and support. I close his comments. In response, I think your house is right. We do see a reaffirmation of gender distinctiveness. I would add some comments of my own here. We are no longer bound by this prohibition of the Old Covenant law. But we do recognize that this passage reveals to us the moral will of God. And it shows us that cross-dressing was not an amoral matter in the days of Israel. No doubt men and women experienced the desire to put on the clothing of the opposite sex in ancient Israel. Thus, we can conclude that gender dysphoria and by extension, I suppose, if you want to play it all the way out, transgender are not new realities. This is not a new condition. In fact, gender dysphoria is an ancient condition and it owes uh, to Genesis three, not to Genesis one and two, but to Genesis three, to the fall of Adam and Eve. Ancient Israel recognizes a category for those who Cross stress, or to use different language, gender bend. Uh, those who experience, we would say in the most precise terminology, gender dysphoria. People in ancient Israel clearly experience this condition. We note that, of course, there is no real reason given why people experience gender dysphoria in ancient Israel. Nothing is listed out here. There, There is not any approach uh, detailed for us by which we think through this issue we recognize fundamentally that with numerous other sex-related prohibitions in the Levitical law, in the Deuteronomic law, there are two major competitors around the area of sex in the ancient Near East. To condense a number of ancient religions into one, there is a pagan vision of sex and human sexuality, and there is a divine vision of sex and human sexuality. The pagan vision of sex has no mooring, it has no real basis, and so one does with the body whatever one sees fit, and of course this includes all sorts of sexual behavior, homosexual behavior included. There is a divine vision, secondly, given us in scripture by God, and that divine vision does not include any opportunity for sexual expression or uh, gender identity, we would say in modern terms, that does not conform with the pattern of Genesis 1 and 2. God has created men to present themselves as men and women, um, or God has created men to present themselves as men, that was a confusing statement, and women to present themselves as women. The whole presentation just collapsed with that very sentence. <laughs> you got your money's worth, didn't you? If you want to read more, by the way, about uh, a pagan understanding of sexuality as opposed to a Christian one, even an ancient one, Peter Jones has done pioneering in very important work on these matters. The ancient Israelites glorified their maker, in other words, by their personal presentation. Uh, representing oneself in dress, in the style of one's appearance, was a matter of obedience to the law and glorification of Yahweh. That's not too strong a way to say it. In fact, any other way of saying it would soften the picture given us in scripture. You are to receive your manhood or your womanhood as a, as a divine gift. And you're to then go on in life to portray that manhood or womanhood to the glory of your Maker. Jason DeRushi of Bethlehem Seminary in Minneapolis says it well on this point. He has a great article on Deuteronomy twenty two five for the Journal for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood from last year. He says this those born boys in light of this passage are to live and thrive as boys, and those born girls are to live and thrive as girls. Jerusha continues, when corrupt desires want to alter this course, one must choose with God's help the path that magnifies the majesty of God best. And that path is defined in Deuteronomy 22 5. As I continue here, Deuteronomy 22 is based off of Genesis 1 and 2. It is not a random out there. Prohibition that pops up in the Levitical law that has no tie to any other matter in the Old Testament witness. It is based directly off of Genesis 1 and 2. There is no reason for this command outside of the original design of God. And thus it is why cross dressing is labeled in the strongest terms any sinful behavior can be in the Old Testament, an abomination to God. We note, as I said a minute ago, we note how unpsychologized this text is doubtless, as I say, gender dysphoria is not new. It is not a modern condition. Understanding in psychological terms gender identity does not mean that we are the first generation to recognize people experiencing what we call often gender dysphoria. This is an ancient condition. The Israelites, we conclude here, were not to treat cross dressing as anything but sinful. It was not an amoral matter. In other words, in the Old Covenant, it is a directly moral matter. Third text that we need to look at. Jesus affirms the goodness of man and woman in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 3, we read from the sacred text. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, Genesis two twenty five. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The point in citing this text Briefly, this is a briefer consideration, is to note that Christ himself believes that there are two sexes. And I use that term advisedly, not gender, two sexes, hard and fast essential realities, male and female, man and woman. This is very importantly, very important, excuse me, because it shows us that Jesus Christ took a position on sex and what we call today gender identity. Sometimes you hear people say on social media that Jesus never said anything about transgender, for example. And it's true that he did not directly address this term transgender. But Jesus clearly upholds what we call an essentialist perspective, an essentialist view of manhood and womanhood. And it is interesting as well to note that his vision of marriage, which is based off of the Old Testament, uh, depends upon a complementarian or essentialist understanding of gender. The reason why there is only one biblical view of marriage, lifelong between a man and a woman, and its intent given us by God, is because God created man and woman for marriage. He created manhood specially to uh, fit elegantly with womanhood. It is this essentialist vision, then, that matters in the teaching of Jesus Christ. Marriage then is not whatever we make of it, just as the sexes are not whatever we perceive them to be. The sexes and marriage are matters that are fixed and formed by Almighty God and Jesus Christ, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord of everyone who confesses him in this room and by extension this conference and by further extension everyone in the global church tells us that this is his vision of manhood, womanhood and marriage. Fourth text: Paul calls men and women to represent faithfully their given sex, and First Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11:7 through15, I need to read a few more verses here. Paul says, "For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God." But woman is the glory of man for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Thus dies all efforts at sexism. Both ways, and all things are from God. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. This passage has sparked much discussion in the history of interpretation. And rightfully so, it is hugely material to our purposes today in this session, in this paper. It shows us that the new covenant vision in Christ of the sexes is precisely the same as the old covenant vision. In sum, nothing has changed. Both testaments represent what we call essentialism of the sexes. Men and women are not the same, created equally to bear God's image, exercise dominion over the earth, and give him great glory. But men and women are distinct from one another out of this image equality. Men and women are united as God's creation, we could say, but distinct from one another. And both facets of men and women must be very much preserved. We cannot soften one and emphasize the other. We cannot lose one and keep the other. We must keep both equality and distinction if we are to rightly represent the biblical portrait of the sexes. Men are called to be the head of their wife, even as God is the head of Christ, in verse 3 of chapter 11. They are to honor the Lord by showing the distinctive glory of their God-given sex. This is what Paul is telling us very simply here in this passage. There are things to sort out but this is what I think Paul is communicating to us. The glory of a woman in verse 15 is her long hair in a way that is not true for a man. Writing in the Calvin Seminary Journal, Branson Parler says this. 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 through 15 can and should be understood as stemming from the same moral logic that undergirds the biblical prohibition of same sex sexual activity, namely the creational difference of male and female. When Paul names same-sex sexual activity as a sin, he does so because God created humans as male and female. When Paul argues that hair length ought to properly differentiate male and female, he does so because God created humans as male and female." This I think is quite right. And it matters for gender dysphoria. It tells us that an apostle of the new covenant, cut in the blood of Jesus Christ, believed that men and women are called to own their God-given sex. They do this intentionally in order to glorify their maker. They may bring into their Christianity, into their lived experience of Christian faith, gender dysphoria, they may do so. Think about the context of Corinth. Many of us will know that Corinth is very much influenced by a pagan vision of sexuality, and so we must assume, in other words, that there are men and women who very much are struggling to own their God-given sex and are not taking pains to represent it according to the design of God. That is a direct implication of this text. The Corinthians, if you wanted to be slightly less academic in your uh, scholarly language, are a mess. They're a mess when it comes to gender and sexuality. And the Apostle Paul is attempting to call them back compassionately to the beauty of God's design. In other words, this is a context that parallels our own. We sometimes hear today, we sometimes lament that things are worse than they have ever been. No doubt, we are not in a happy place when it comes to our society's vision of sex and sexuality, but we also take pains to note that Corinth was no uh, Sunday school factory for Christians either. And many people, it would appear, who were coming into the church, struggled with what we would call gender dysphoria. Struggled, in other words, to own, to wrap their arms around biblical sex and sexuality. And so the Apostle Paul calls them back to the biblical standard, calls them to own and represent faithfully their God-given sex. Contra what you may have heard then, to be a Christian is not to lose your sex, your God-given sex, manhood or womanhood. It is to receive it as a gift, to treasure the manhood or womanhood God has given you, to treasure it, to honor God by owning it in a spirit of thankfulness, Modesty and joy. Biology is destiny. Manhood is a gift. Womanhood is a gift. These are enchanted realities. This is what I'm trying to say to you. This is counter, this presentation that I'm offering here from the scripture, is counter to what Yarhouse tells us about using the Bible on matters of gender dysphoria. He says this, There is a need to balance between two hazards when we turn to the Bible to inform our discussion about gender dysphoria. The one hazard is to look to scripture for answers it is not prepared to provide. The other hazard is to fail to critically reflect on the sociocultural context in which we live and make decisions about gender identity and dysphoria. I do agree with him here that we must critically reflect on our sociocultural context. But I would disagree that scripture is not prepared to provide answers to this matter of gender dysphoria. It is true that walking with people through gender dysphoria is going to take great care. It is. It is going to be messy. There are going to be fits and starts. It is going to require enormous doses of compassion, just like the Apostle Paul was doling out by the power of the gospel in the era of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But we must take pains. Please hear me, brothers and sisters. We must take pains to affirm the sufficiency of scripture on just this point and without limit or hesitation. The Christian pastor is equipped to deal with all matters that bear on life and godliness. And the scripture is what equips him. Second Peter 1 3 tells us that it is through knowledge That we possess all that we need for life and godliness. Knowledge of Christ. Knowledge that bears from the scriptures comes from the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, training, rebuking, and instruction in righteousness. This is not, as I said, to say that this is not a complex matter. That there are not deep factors that will play into the experience of gender dysphoria. There surely are. But our point is to note this. Pastors are equipped for these things, and the gospel is sufficient for this challenge. The gospel is sufficient. If everyone else lets go of that conviction, let there be a witness among evangelicals that we will never give it up out of compassion, out of love for sinners like us. The problems do not end there. Yes, the church is filled with sinners. But pulling back to Yarhouse's words on messy missional churches, the church has clear limits on the kind of life it can affirm. A man fighting to control his temper, claiming the Spirit's power and renewal through progressive sanctification, the church can affirm. The church can walk with him through a struggle, a visceral battle to overcome anger within him, one of his inherent uh, repetitive sins. But a man beating up a neighbor per week Leaving them a bloody mass on the ground, a man attacking visitors coming into the church building on a regular basis, it cannot affirm. If you have a greeter who repeatedly attacks people and beats them up UFC style, you have a problem on your hands. You have a matter that has to be dealt with, and the man who is engaged, who's locked in this behaviour, cannot excuse his behaviour by saying, uh, Well, I'm messy, I'm broken. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11, makes very clear that the Corinthians had left their sinful identities behind. Yes, they struggled with indwelling sin, with the old man pulling at them, but nonetheless, they used to be sinners in terms of identity. They no longer were. They had made a break with their sin, a fundamental break that that uh, is symbolized by effectively turning away from it and walking uh, away from it. Surely. We exercise compassion and tone and demeanor and conversation when we counsel people experiencing gender dysphoria. But we mark this as well. Truth and compassion are by no means distinct. Truth and compassion are one. They kiss. If the scripture speaks against a behavior, we are compassionate if and only if we speak against it. We must unfold the glory of biblical anthropology for fellow sinners, showing them that we believe that humanity is an enchanted, though fallen creation of God. I'm writing a biblical anthropology for B&H academic right now that is attempting to play out that theme. Sinners like us bear God's image. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. But sin has killed them spiritually, and they need the grace of Christ, which is freely offered them. All this is truth. All this is compassion to encourage people experiencing gender dysphoria to cross-dress if need be as your house allows is to lose sight of the biblical testimony it is to lose sight of first Corinthians 11. It is also to lose sight of the power of the gospel of grace I do not mean he intends to do this but I fear he does. Grace does not pristinate the flesh. Grace is a new principle. it is a new non-natural principle Christ in us bringing us back to God's design. That's what God does through his grace. He brings us back to his design, not to the flesh, but to his plan. Here we know how curious transgender language can be. We are told that it is wrong to emphasize essentialism, but transgender, mark this, transgender identity actually depends upon essentialism. It stands for the view that I have a fixed sex, and it is not the one that my body represents. It is a different fixed sex. And so I should take steps to own my fixed sex, which is not in accord with my biology. In this way, we see that Christianity and transgender both hold to essentialism, but only Christianity promotes the biblical form of it. You do not remake the sex God has given you to become the sex you should be. You embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ as a sinner, and God brings you back to the beauty of his design. We are commonly told today, rounding to a close in this presentation, that transgender individuals cannot help themselves, but here too we note a major inconsistency in the logic of transgender. The whole identity is premised on change. Christianity argues that we must change as well, but the change that is needed is not a departure from our biological sex, but a gospel embrace. Of it. The gospel and manhood and womanhood are directly related. It's not that we become an androgynous Christian person through Christ. It is that we become a gospel-loving man or a gospel-loving woman giving God much glory by the power of Christ. The desire to overhaul one's body and one's gender expression is not a problem isolated from a lack of faith in Christ. Rosaria Butterfield and others have made this point well. It is sin that leads us away from Christ. It is a lack of Christ that leads us to reject all of God's goodness, including his design for humanity. It is Christ that we need, not a counseling session with our gender matters first and foremost in view. We first and foremost need Jesus. Gender dysphoria may proceed from a range of fallen experiences and behaviors. We must say this. Though we should carefully and compassionately probe the background and narratives of those who face it, we should also recognize that finding the root may prove difficult in some cases. Wherever we can, we unspool what people are experiencing. But our counsel to people who struggle with gender dysphoria is not merely psychological or emotional. It is preeminently moral and theological. To resist God's good design... To move out of step with God's gift of our sex is to dishonor and disobey God. So we believe in change. We believe in hope. We believe in redemption to the uttermost. We believe in God's design. As evangelicals, we must never give it up, no matter what the culture says. The culture would have us give up every facet of our doctrine if we would. If we have been taught to minimize the gift of God's design, we must recover the biblical witness. We must repent of lack of fidelity to God and our lack of joy in his creational blessings. In conclusion, part of my embracing masculinity and rejecting femininity was my own way of protecting myself from pain. Jackie Hill Perry says, pain that I believed men were capable of subjecting me to. You cannot read her words without profound compassion. After all, that's what my father did to me. That's what I saw men Due to my mother. That's what I witnessed my guy friends do to the women they claim to love. All I knew of men was that they used their manliness as a means to inflict pain. And us women, us weak beings, were target practice. Here is the conclusion to her story, the happy conclusion. After becoming a Christian, she says, I haven't been on this journey for too long, and it has definitely been a difficult one. But God is faithful. He has sent me a husband who is not a lover of wrestling, but a basketball fanatic. Good for him. Who doesn't fight with me over the remote, but humbly offers to watch Food Network with me. Wow, what a guy. He leads me in humility in the small and large things of life. God has given me a daughter, Eden, who is slowly bringing out the gentle parts of me, Jackie says, that I tried for so long to hide. I am a Christian, a wife, a mother, and a woman who is being made strong in her weaknesses. And I love it. A testimony like this scarcely needs elaboration. It is a witness to the goodness of God, the power of grace, and the compassion of complementarity. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor Strand. We are going to hear our second presentation at nine fifty. We're gonna break for I think we have about nine minutes, then we'll come back. If you enjoyed this episode be sure to check out the rest of the Owen Strand collection now available on Canon Plus